Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be able to be with you this morning on this Lord's Day. Let me invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Psalm 39. Psalm 39 is the text that I have selected this morning for us to work through together. Psalm 39. And I've entitled this message, A Troubled Life. Psalm 39. Uh, our, our church has uh, worked through the first 41 psalms. Um, I had heard how much the psalms had shaped some of the early church fathers and as they had preached sequentially through them. And I thought, boy, to, I had never done that. In fact, there were some of the psalms that I thought, how in the world would you ever preach those psalms? You know, they're a little confusing just to read them. They're an encouragement, but how in the world would you ever preach them? And so whenever I heard the effect that they had had upon uh, the early church fathers and some of the great uh, preachers uh, throughout church history, I thought, boy, I would just love to be able to work through that and hope that our people would be encouraged and challenged. And uh, it, it was probably one of the most devotional and encouraging times uh, we finished 41 of the Psalms, and uh, I told uh, our people that we were going to take a break and go over to the New Testament. They wanted me to continue and uh, working through the Psalms, and I, I said, you know, let me stop there while you're wanting more instead of telling me, hey, can we take a break for a little while? So we'll go to the New Testament and then come back through it. But as we worked through it, there were some that were very, very encouraging. There were others that were uh, challenging because uh, they weren't really... Um, bright, uh, encouraging, kind of pump-me-up text, and yet they proved really to be deep and devotional and to help us to work through some of the difficulties of our life. Uh, just again, giving testimony to uh, how God's Word, every word of His is inspired and uh, just encouraging and authoritative and helpful for our spiritual growth. So our, our text for this morning is Psalm 39, and I've entitled it, A Troubled Life. I'm reading from the New American Standard this morning. The title that they've given to the, to the text is The Vanity of Life. Uh, the text reads, For the choir director for Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle, while the wicked are in my presence. I was dumb and silent. I refrained even from good, and my sorrow grew worse. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days. Let me know how transient I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in thy sight. Surely every man at his best is a mere breath. Surely every man walks about as a phantom Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in Thee. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I have become dumb. I do not open my mouth because it is Thou who hast done it. 
remove thy plague from me, and because of the opposition of thy hand, I am perishing. With reproofs, thou dost chasten a man for iniquity. Thou dost consume as a moth what is precious to him. Surely every man is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee, a sojourner like all my fathers. Turn thy gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Psalm 39 is one of those texts that whenever you read it, 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 it's not especially encouraging from the initial reading. It, it doesn't pump you up with the greatness of God. Instead, as you're thinking through what this text is really all about, you discover that it is nothing short of a personal lament. David is struggling. He's going through a very, very difficult time in life. And this text is a record of his heart, his prayer to God. What Psalm 39 is about and why it appears where it does within the Psalter aren't really obvious at the outset. If you're reading through the Psalter, reading the Psalm sequentially, as you read this one, you you may not understand, well, what's it all about and why did those who put the Psalter together place Psalm 39 in this particular place? And yet, little by little, as you continue to read, as you continue to study Psalm 39 in its context with some of the other Psalms, you begin to see some parallels. Uh, You begin to see that Psalm 39 is really linked with Psalm 38. In fact, there's some of the same language that is used in Psalm 39 that you'll find in Psalm 38. For instance, you'll find that the silence and the anguish that are described in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 39 are also described in Psalm 38. You'll find that he mentions a plague here in verse number 10 that is a a word that's used to describe leprosy, and it's also uh, used in Psalm 38 in verse 11. And as you're reading and just studying these psalms together, you're finding out that what David is going through are really a discipline for sin that is coming from the hand of God. These things are really what links Psalm 38 and Psalm 39. We, we don't know the exact context or what the situation was that David was going through, but there was unconfessed sin in David's life, and God was intervening within David's life. God had his attention, and as you see, he is the, God's disciplining hand is pushing David back toward the God who loves him. You find out that these two psalms are linked. Uh, Further, there are similarities not only between Psalm 38 and Psalm 39, but also uh, those two are linked to Psalm 37. And the reason that is, is you find that the psalmist David has a hope fixed on his God. Uh, No matter what he's going through, it seems that David is driven back to God. Whatever difficulty, whatever valley, whatever tragedy or trial David is faced with, he is being pushed back to his God who always gives him hope. In fact, you find out in Psalm 37, 38, and 39 that there are plotters and scorners who are his enemies, and God is using them in order to drive David back to God. 
And yet each of these psalms is quite distinctive and unlike the other two. For instance, if you were to work through Psalm 37, uh, David would be saying to his readers, Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. And, And David is really developing or modeling strategies for coping with life in a crooked world. As you see the world around you and how crooked it is and the difficulties, David is helping his readers to learn, to learn how to navigate that crooked world and yet maintain their hope and their confidence in God. Whenever you come to Psalm 38, you find that David is sick with sin. You find as you're reading through Psalm 38 that, that, that God is disciplining David for sin with physical sickness. Now, we know that's not always the case. We know that, that there are times whenever we get sick just because we live in a fallen world. But in this particular case, David is quite clear that the physical suffering he was enduring was a result of his unconfessed sin to God. And David is revealing within that reasons to pray whenever you are sick with sin. But here in Psalm 39, it's, it's a little bit different. You're reading through and you're, you're noticing that there are, there are similarities with other books of the Old Testament. For instance, you'll find that Psalm 37 looks a lot like the book of Proverbs. And you'll find that Psalm 38 looks a lot like the book of Job. And you'll find that Psalm 39 looks a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes. And the reason for that is because three times the word that dominates the book of Ecclesiastes works into this particular psalm. The word is hevel. The word means vanity or meaninglessness, and here it's translated as breath or vanity. You'll see it in verse 5, you'll see it in verse 6, and you'll see it in verse number 11. If you were to take a flyover of Psalm 39, you would find that David begins by really recounting how he had resolved to say nothing about his plight. He doesn't tell us what he's going through or what was exactly happening, but but he's not going to say anything. He's not going to vent. He's not going to complain about what's going on. He's resolved to say nothing until finally he can bear it no longer, but then he says something that we would not anticipate him saying. And after he begins to ask God for something specific, he then prays and asks God for relief. That God would stop putting him through what he was going through because he doesn't know if he can take it anymore. In fact, whenever the psalm ends, David is wondering whether or not he will live very much longer. It is that challenging of a situation. I don't know if you've ever been through anything like that. I don't know if you've ever been under the chastening hand of God. I don't know if you've ever been under the chastening hand of God to the point that you thought that you wouldn't live very much longer, but that is the case surrounding David in Psalm 39. What is surprising about Psalm 39 is it says, "...for the choir director." And the reason why that is so surprising is because this dirge-like psalm was given to be used by the music director in order to lead the nation of Israel in corporate worship. In fact, you find as you study the book of Psalms that some 55 times you find that designation for the choir director. Again, this isn't a pick-me-up text of Scripture, but it is something that is helpful for us to learn as God's children. It was important enough for the nation of Israel to be able to sing this to God, even though it was a personal lament. It was a time of drawing near to God in a time of trouble. 
David gives a further designation here. He writes, for the choir director, for Jeduthun. Jeduthun was one of three musicians that David put in charge of worship at the sanctuary. The other ones were Heman and Asaph. And Jeduthun is mentioned in two other psalms. Here we see that this is a psalm of David. David is the author. And we find out that it's written for our encouragement. Yet whenever you first read the psalm, you might think, I don't have any idea of what to do with this, how to apply it personally. And so you read it again and you read it again and you read it again. Now, that's what you do in your Bible reading. Can you imagine if you're going to preach or teach this psalm, just reading it for the first time, you might be thinking, Lord, help me with this one. But whenever we approach this, we're not asking the question, or we're not asking what can I say about Psalm 39, but what does Psalm 39 say? It's kind of right in line with what we do whenever we do Bible study. We approach a text and we, we ask three questions of it. What does this text say? What does it mean by what it says? And then how does it apply to my life? We're looking for the timeless truth. We're, we're looking for what God means by what he says and, and how it is that he wants us to live as a result. I've summarized Psalm 39 in this way. I, I summarized it by saying in Psalm 39, David is really modeling four lessons that he learned from his troubled life. Uh, it's kind of a big picture flyover. It's a summary. He's not necessarily setting out lessons to teach his readers or, or people that would sing certain truths, but he's modeling for them. He's modeling these lessons that he's learned from his troubled life. And I think that as we work through this together, that you will, you will learn along with David maybe how to respond in different troubling situations. Here's the first lesson that David modeled from his troubled life, and that is whenever you want to protest, wait in silence. Whenever you want to protest, wait in silence. David began in verses in verse one by saying, I, I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle while the wicked are in my presence. At this point, as we're working through this, we're not sure if David is speaking to God in prayer or if he's merely writing for the benefit of his readers. We're just not sure, but the first line reveals David's intentions. David has questions about his suffering. David would love to voice those questions. David would love to express his displeasure at his situation. However, David remains silent out of concern for showing, blaming God in a sinful way. He doesn't want to do that. He, he holds his tongue. He closes his lips. Uh, he is careful with how he lives, especially with his words, so that he doesn't say anything sinful. In other words, he, he has the composure to understand that God is sovereign in his life, that, that God is overseeing him, and God has him in exactly this situation, even though as difficult as it is, he remains quiet so that he doesn't sin with his lips. We know of another man from the Old Testament who had a very difficult life, our time in his life, and yet he also remained quiet. 
Job was another one who suffered greatly and was careful with his words. As you're reading through the book of Job, you find that the language and the actions are swift. They are calamitous. And whenever you see that Job lost everything in a very quick time as God suggested that Job was one that Satan could attack because Job was questioning why he followed God. And as his whole life crumbled around him, Job one twenty. Says, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Job's wife didn't act in the same way. And in Job 2 and verse 9, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? In other words, why don't you just get this over with? Why don't you just say what needs to be said so that the suffering can stop and that you can go ahead and be done with it and die? But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I think that David understood the same principle. I think that David understood that there are good things that God gives to us and there are difficult things. There are bends in the road that we don't expect. There are, there are portions of our life that we, just, we don't anticipate. And whenever we find ourselves there, we have to understand that God is still in control. The second line in verse number 1 really reveals the extent to which David would go in order not to sin with his mouth. He says, more than that, I will even put a muzzle over my mouth. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. That word muzzle is very graphic. It, it, it doesn't appear anywhere else in the entire Old Testament. And it's a graphic way of describing how he was going to remain silent. He wanted the emotional release of talking about his pain. He probably wanted to vent. He wanted to express to someone his displeasure with his situation. But instead, he decided purposefully to put a muzzle on it. The third line reveals the reason for his efforts, and he writes, while the wicked are in my presence. You see, David had the foresight and the awareness to understand that there were unbelievers who were around him. And so David had decided to remain silent, not to complain about his situation, not to bring into question those who were in charge of our life, because he did not want the unbeliever to be able to attack his character, or more specifically, he did not want the unbeliever to be able to question the goodness of God. David had the awareness to understand that if he complained about the difficulty in his life, that the unbeliever would see him acting in a manner that was not humble and that was not grateful and that in turn could be used to question God's goodness. So in verse number two, David writes, I was dumb and silent. I refrained even from good and my sorrow or my pain grew worse. David was successful for a while. He says, I was dumb. It doesn't mean he was stupid. It just means that he chose not to speak. He chose to act as if he couldn't speak and he didn't say anything bad. He was silent. In fact, he, he didn't say anything at all. He didn't even say anything good. But that didn't make him feel any better. In fact, it made him feel worse. His sorrow, literally his emotional pain, increased. Verse number three says, my heart was hot within me. 
He was probably burning with anxiety, with impatience, with worry. He was talking about the mission control center of, of where he was. He was he was probably eaten up inside. His situation was so dire. In fact, whenever you read the end of Psalm number 39, verse number 13, he thinks that he's going to die. He's right on the cusp of losing his life, and yet he is he is holding it all within. He's not voicing his pain, his sorrow to anyone. This was extremely difficult. But the questions remained. God, why am I going through this? Why is my life so difficult now? Lord, how long will this continue? When will you give me a reprieve? When will you give me a break? When will you bring this to an end? In fact, he says, my heart was hot within me, and while I was musing, the fire burned. The more he thought about it, the more anxious and impatient he became. He, he, he wasn't getting better, it was getting worse, and he was holding it inside, and the fire was growing, and, and he simply did not know what to do. The great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon wrote of this text describing David while his heart was musing, it was fusing, for the subject was confusing. I'm sure it was. David writes, and then I spoke with my tongue. David had burning questions about his dilemma, and David had been determined to keep quiet about his suffering. David wanted to protect his integrity and the integrity of his God. He was determined not to say anything at all, which at this point, we, we don't even know what's going on in his life. We, we, we don't know the reason for his suffering. We don't know uh, the, the type of suffering, anything that was going on. He hasn't told us. He's, he simply said that I'm going to try with all my might not to say anything at all, but it didn't help. It's probable that David was sick with sin because of Psalm 38 and, and what's going on. There seems to be such a close similarity, a sickness because of unconfessed sin. But at this point, we simply don't know. What we do know was that David was aware of his situation, aware of his God, and he was determined not to say anything about the hard times or even the good points of his life. But finally, the trial was simply too much for David, and he breaks his silence with a series of questions and requests for his God. The rest of the psalm contains those requests in the form of a prayer. Now, I, I, I don't know most of you. Uh, I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know where you are in your journey of life. I don't know how your life is going, whether you're enjoying a season of, of encouragement and pleasure and blessing in your life, or, or, or maybe your life has taken a bend in the road. Maybe you're finding yourself in the middle of a valley, maybe a deep valley, maybe a troubled time with something that's going on. I, I don't know what's going on in your life, but I can tell you what David learned through the trouble in his life. And the lesson that he learned was when you want to protest, wait in silence. When you want to complain, when you want to, uh, to just vent, when you want to just get it off your chest because you've had it up to here with the hand that you've been dealt in life and you think, can I get a break in life? Why is it that God is even doing this to me? I mean, after all, I love him, I try to serve him, but why is my life so difficult? 
Even whenever I look at other people who may not love him as much as I think that I love him, why is their life better and my life is difficult? There's a lesson that David learned in life, and he models it here in Psalm 39 for us, and that is, when you want to protest, wait in silence. It's never easy to do something like that. There's something cathartic about sharing with others what's going on in your heart, maybe even just kind of getting it off your chest. But, but, but David didn't do that. David did something else instead. He kept it inside until he couldn't keep it inside anymore because he was concerned about the character of God and the witness that he had as his child. But whenever we get to verse number four, there, there's, there's another life lesson that David models for us, and that is, when you want perspective, pray for wisdom. Now, I, I put these points together, and I, as the more I was kind of going through this, I really would like to switch those. There's nothing that the people running the PowerPoint can do for me, but, but you can write it in your notes. When you want wisdom, pray for perspective. That's really what David wanted was perspective on his situation in his life. He wanted to view things from God's viewpoint. He wanted to understand his life from God's perspective. And that would help him to understand maybe a little bit of how he could respond rightly in this situation. Verse number four, David writes, or really prays, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the extent of my days let me know how transient I am. Now, if, if that were me or if that were you and you waited till you couldn't wait any longer and you finally wanted to say something, that might not be the request that we make. We might be asking God to change our situation, to deliver us from our difficulty, whatever it may be, but that's not what David does. David doesn't ask for deliverance, but David asks for perspective. He he wants wisdom for how to respond in his situation. What David wants to know from God is, 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 Lord, when am I going to die? How long is my life going to be? How much time do I have left? Because David wants a better understanding of the brevity of his life. David is asking this question that probably we seldom ask. Lord, help me to know my life is coming to an end. We we don't like to think about that. We want to avoid that. We don't like to talk about death. It it makes us uncomfortable. It's, It's something we're not prepared for. It's something that we're not ready for. But instead, David is asking, Lord, make me to know my end. What is the extent of my days? Let me know how transient I am. Lord, I want to know that I have an expiration date because I believe that it's probably coming up very soon. All three lines in verse number four are Hebrew poetry. They're different ways of asking the very same question, which, by the way, is a great question to ask God from time to time. Lord, help me to know what life is really all about. God, would you just remind me of how much time I have here, of how brief my life really is. Moses said something in Psalm 90. He prayed, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And help me to understand that I'm not going to live forever, that, that I, my days are numbered because I, I, I want to make my life count. I want to live my life with intention. 
You see, if you know that you have a very short time to live, then, then most times you will choose to live your life differently. I have a friend uh, back in Phoenix, a very godly lady who has been diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and she had been fighting it for quite a while, and, and recently they have realized that the, the treatment is not helping. And so the doctor gave her a specific amount of time to live. And I was talking with Heather and asking, so if the doctor were to give you that amount of time, three to six months to live, what would you do with your time? How would your life change? I'm sure you'd be more and more purposeful with the people that you met with, with how you spent your time, with what you did, just an awareness that your, your time is limited and you want your time to count. What's interesting is David is not asking for deliverance, but David is asking for perspective. I guess it's a good question to ask you this morning. This is a predominantly young congregation, a young church, a lot of young families. But here's the question, brothers and sisters, are you aware of your own mortality? Are you aware that your days are numbered? You see, whenever you're young, you think that you'll never die. You think that you'll live forever and that you can do whatever you want and there's just all the time in the world. But do you, like David, ask God to help you grasp how short your life really is? It seems like as David is asking or praying these questions, David becomes aware of his own mortality. The reason why I say that is because he answers his own question in verse number four. I, I, excuse me, in verse number, in verse number five, he, he, I don't know how long the transition was between verse four and verse five as he is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, but, but he gives the answer to the question in verse four in verse number five. Behold, look at this. Thou, God, you have made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in your sight. Now, that's probably not the way that you and I would describe it if we were to say it in that way. We don't speak in terms of handbreadths. How many of you recently said to your wife, hey, I want you to go to, uh, to Home Depot and, and I want you to get a board that's about three handbreadths long? We, we don't talk like that, right? It's just not our form of measurement. But in ancient Israel, the handbreadth was one of the smallest measurements of length. It was about four fingers long. And so if you were to measure four fingers in length, it would be about three inches. And that was, you had that form of measurement with you. You could tell what a hand breadth was. And David is here saying, Lord, if you lined up my days in a line, they would extend just a few inches, just a few hand breadths. His conclusion is that from God's point of view, his, his life is virtually nothing. His, his life is so short He could say it in this way, wow, God, I've just come to understand from your perspective that that my life is very, very short. It's very, very brief. My, My time here should be purposeful and intentional. It sounds quite similar to Psalm 144 in verse number four. Man is like a mere breath. His days are like a passing shadow. But David comes to the realization that this is true not only for him, but for everyone else as well. In fact, he goes on to mention in verse number five, surely every man 
He was mentioning about himself. He was saying, behold, Lord, you've made my days as handbreadths and my lifetime as nothing in thy sight. But surely every man at his, bre- at his best is a mere breath. Literally, the text says, surely every man standing firm. That's what at his best literally translates. Every man standing firm is altogether vanity. In other words, at your prime, at your, at your physical prime, whenever you're at your peak in performance, whenever at your sharpest, whenever you're on point physically, mentally, intellectually, whenever you are the best you that you could possibly be, whenever you are on top of your game and you are just able to do, it seems like anything, David says that your life at its best is mere breath, it's vanity. That word breath is the word hevel, used in a variety of ways in the Old Testament. Here it's used as a way of lamenting the shortness of life. Hence the translation is vanity. Sounds very similar to the passages in Ecclesiastes, and that's probably why they gave this Psalm 39 the title, The Vanity of Life. There was a Hebrew scholar that described what this word hevel meant, this vanity, this shortness of life. And, and he wrote this. He wrote that this word vanity or the shortness of life is, is what's left ever. Uh, excuse me, hevel is what's left over when a soap bobble, bubble pops, uh, which is nothing. It, it, it's that brief. I think probably the best illustration of the shortness of life comes from my, from my friend Rick Holland. And he described that our life is like a vapor. It's like steam from a cup of coffee. Now, I, I, I like coffee. Well, that's probably not true. I, I, I love coffee. I really love coffee. And probably my favorite time of day is in the morning. Whenever I get up, I'm a morning person, and I'll go. And the first thing you do is right, turn on the coffee pot, and, and it gets going. And you pour that cup of coffee, and I make my way into my study and, and uh, read my Bible. And, and I sit down at my desk, and, and I notice the steam coming off the cup of coffee. As I was preparing for this text, as I was working through it, I, I, I just sat there with that cup in my hand. Just watching the steam rise and watching how short of a time that steam would endure. Brothers and sisters, your life is like that steam. Your life is like a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. David is saying here, surely every man at his best is like steam rising from a cup of coffee. Do you understand that no matter how stable you are, no matter how physically strong you may be, no matter how seemingly secure you are, no matter how financially successful, no no matter how mentally competent, surely every man and every woman is nothing more than steam coming from a cup of coffee. It's pretty graphic. That's graphic imagery that starts to impact the way that you and I approach life. 
You see, David is letting us in on what's going on in his life. And, and, and David has come to the realization that life is short and that he doesn't have as much time as he thought. He was asking God for perspective. He was praying for wisdom. And God was helping David to understand that his time was very, very brief. And it wasn't just for him, but it was for every person. It was for every person at their strongest point. It was everyone in their prime. It's nothing more than a vapor. Your life is so brief. In fact, he he uses this word surely again in verse number 6. He uses it uh, some four times here in Psalm 39. The end of verse 5, twice in verse number 6, once again down in verse number 11. Surely or doubtlessly every man walks about as a phantom, as an image. He's not saying people look like ghosts everywhere I I go. It's not that he's saying I see ghosts walking around. He's saying that life of every individual is so brief that their life disappears like a shadow. Here today and gone tomorrow. David keeps repeating this word, surely. He's, he's marking something in his mind. It's something that, that he doesn't want to forget. It's, a, it's something that he doesn't want to get past. He, he, he's wanting to carve a, a, a mental notch. There's, there's something that he's want, the truth that he wants to screw into his mind. He, he wants to understand the brevity of life. He wants to have God's perspective on how he is supposed to live. He goes on to say, not only surely every man walks about it as a phantom, but surely they make an uproar for nothing. In other words, people are just too busy. I think that life doesn't change. Uh, maybe our, our mode of transportation changes. Maybe our, our clothing changes. Maybe the, the comforts that we enjoy, such as air conditioning and that type of thing. But David's calendar was full, just like your calendar is full. Not much room for anything else. Not, not room to squeeze in a time to disciple someone or meet with someone or have someone into your home to care for them. They're very, very busy doing all of these things. David says, surely they make an uproar. Notice what he says for nothing. Psalm 127 in verse number two says, it's vain for you to rise up early and to retire late and to eat the bread of painful labors. Why? Because it's God who adds to your life even in your sleep. Ecclesiastes 5.17 says, Throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. What a way to summarize the rat race of life. Killing yourself. And for what? He doesn't stop. The perspective is sobering. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. What David means is that people spend all their life piling up stuff. I mean, just work, work, work in order to buy, 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 in order to pile, pile, pile. It's only to die not knowing who's going to get what you've spent your life piling up. In other words, it's pretty pointless. And you might say, oh, but Scott, I I know who's going to get the stuff that I've piled up. I have a will. And my kids are going to get everything that I leave to them. Oh, is that right? Have you ever been to an estate sale? 
Do you know what your kids do with your stuff that you leave behind for them? His point is merely this. David says, if I'm able to grasp how short life really is, then I'm not going to waste my life on being overly busy and stacking up stuff because there's a better, more fulfilling way to live. And now what's interesting is it took David being in the middle of some dire situation, something that he was lamenting his, uh, his course that he was on in life. God's disciplined hand was on David, and yet David was learning a life lesson that we, we don't have to go through what David went through in order to learn the lesson that he's trying to model for us here. And the lesson is that you and I can understand that with the wrong focus, life becomes nothing more than an empty show. One person wrote it as an empty show with shadow people bustling about trying to get rich. For what? For what? It doesn't buy you any happiness. Years later, Solomon would raise the very same questions in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It would be the Lord Jesus himself in Luke 12 who would ask the question, For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world? And what? Loses his own soul. David here has come to the understanding that if you measure the length of your life, it's very possible that you can become despondent. In other words, whenever you realize that you don't have all the time in the world, that your life is measured in handbreadths instead. Whenever you come to understand that life is swift and that life is short, and for most people who are focused on the wrong things in life, life is futile. In modern vocabulary, people are living for the image and not the reality. Brothers and sisters, David is under God's thumb, but he's learning to listen. Do you need wisdom for your life? Has God got you at a point where you're willing not to speak, but you're willing to listen to what he has to say? Here's what you can ask God for. You can ask him for perspective. You can ask him to help you to understand your own mortality. That you can can look at how you're spending your time and, 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 and what you're doing with your life. And does it really matter? Why has God why are you here at this point what is God trying to teach you David is modeling for us some lessons that he learned from his troubled life whenever you want to protest wait in silence whenever you want wisdom pray for perspective and here here is another one whenever you want relief ask for deliverance Whenever you want relief, ask for deliverance. If all that other stuff is a waste of time, for what are you supposed to wait? Verse number 7 says, And now, Lord, for what do I wait? Notice what he says here in your Bible. My hope is in thee. Up until this point, David has been writing with an increasing level of intensity. He, he's tried to remain quiet, but his suffering has brought him to the point that he, he, he can't remain silent anymore. But instead of asking for deliverance, instead he asks for perspective. And, and, and at this point, verse number 7, and now, Lord, it's an emphatic transition in the original. He's, he's highlighting what David has said. It's come to this point where he's recognizing that God is his master. 
God is the one who is in control of his life. He's come to the point again where his his focus is exactly where it needs to be. He's brought things into perspective. And David responds by saying, now God, now Lord, now master. Because he knows that the Lord is the only one who can change things for David. Because nobody else is able to reach David where he is. You see, whenever you reach the point of desperation in your life, only a realization of God's sovereignty will give you hope. Only His goodness can move you to pray. Brothers and sisters, if you don't have God, you don't have hope. And if you don't have God, you can't have peace. David was understanding that as difficult and desperate as his heart had come, David knew that he had hope in God. Because David believed that only God could and would provide what he needed, he asked the Lord to save him. He asked God to deliver him. He asked God to rescue him from all of his sin and its consequences. Here David gives insight into his suffering. And here we see that David sees why he is suffering. In verse number 8, he says, deliver me from all my transgressions. And this is consistent with the lessons that he learned in Psalm 38. David had recognized that his suffering, listen, had been caused by his sin. Suddenly, David is realizing that what he's going through is because he he has not been confessing his sin. He has been pursuing his own course in life. And David realizes that only God could provide him with deliverance. And so David prays, make me not the reproach of fools. David knew that only if God rescued him, he would be spared from others mocking him. I guess my question is, is your hope in the Lord? Is, is verse number seven special to you? Do you mark up your Bible? Do you write in your Bible? Do you, do you highlight things? Do you, do you have those times when your pastor is preaching to you and it's as if God is speaking directly to your heart through his word and, and you receive encouragement and blessing from God's word and, and you understand his truth and how it applies to you? This is verse number seven is one of those verses that you highlight. He is the one to whom you turn. Do you look to God to save you from the penalty of your sin as well as the devastating effects of your sin? Do you understand that David doesn't know what you and I know? David doesn't know that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for sinners. David doesn't understand that the sacrificial system will soon be over and that there will be one sacrifice that we remembered this morning, that one sacrifice that atoned for all sin. And the people who are in desperate need of grace can receive that grace through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. What wonderful news that is for sinners. That if you realize that you are a sinner, that you are in need of a savior, that you are in desperate need because of your deep sin, that God loves you and has provided a way for your sin to be covered. For deliverance to be granted, for forgiveness to be received. And it comes only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. In verse number nine, David responds in humility I have become dumb. 
I do not open my mouth because it is thou who hast done it. Whenever he says, I become dumb, it's silence, referring to silence, but a different kind than what he's talked about previously. And in verses 1 and 2, he shut his mouth uh, out of fear of sinning with his words. But here in verse number 9, David is silent because he understands that God is the one who has been at work behind the scenes. Now he has nothing to say. Before he couldn't contain it, although he was trying because he didn't want to sin with his mouth, now he knows that he needs to keep his mouth shut. And the reason why is because God has been dealing with him because of his own sin. David says, I've become dumb. I do not open my mouth. It's not right for David to question God's justice. He understands that God is right in dealing with him because of his sin. But there is something that he can ask for, and that something is deliverance. In verse number 10, he says, Remove thy plague from me, thy stroke from me. Lord, if you could readjust the sights on your stroke, if you could just turn it just a few degrees to the right or just a few degrees to the left, if you could could turn that stroke away from me, I might survive. The reason comes in verse number 10, Because of the opposition of thy hand, I am perishing. Lord, I'm wasting away here. I I can't take very much more of it. The word opposition is translated blows of your hand. It occurs only here in the Old Testament. It has the general sense of hostility. God, please, you're taking me to the woodshed here. You're disciplining me. I, I can't take many more of your strokes. Will you remove literally your plague from me? And then in verse number 11, with reproofs, thou dost chasten a man for iniquity. Must there be any doubt as to why David was suffering? He says, literally, without punishments on account of sin, you discipline a man. There's three main ways that people will respond whenever they're sinning. They're wrong responses, but they'll either minimize their sin, say it's not that big of a deal, you're, you're making too much of it, or they'll try to justify it. Here are the reasons that I'm justified in doing this, or they'll just flat out deny that they've done anything wrong. David doesn't do any of those. David confesses. David repents. David is asking for deliverance. And David says here, Thou dost consume as a moth what is precious to him. It's graphic, poetic imagery. Job used the same type of imagery to refer to his own suffering in Job 13. And here David is comparing what God does to what a moth does when it eats what is precious to a man. Whether it's his wealth, whether it's his health, whether it's his very life. One more time, David emphasizes how frail and temporary life is for everyone. Surely, every man is a mere breath. Do you think like that? Uh, Sunday morning, July, vacation time. Do you have an awareness that your life is limited? Do you have the perspective on life that God is in control of you and that the way you live does really matter? That he loves you unconditionally, but that you belong to him. 
And that he wants you and me to honor him with our life. And, 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 and there's something going on here within the life of David that is, that is helping us to understand how to respond whenever life is difficult. David is modeling these lessons that you and I can learn without having to go through what he went through. One was whenever you want to protest, wait in silence. Two was whenever you want wisdom, pray for perspective. Three is when you want relief, ask God for deliverance. He can deliver you. And finally, he closes with a request or a plea when you want to reprieve, plead for mercy. When you want to reprieve, plead for mercy. Verse number 12, David says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. David is begging God to respond to his prayers, his cries, his tears. David doesn't stop asking when God is slow to respond. You see, David knows that he's there. David knows that he's there. Even though he is slow to respond, he knows that he's there. And he confesses to God, hear my prayer, give ear to my cry. Don't be silent to my tears for because I am a stranger with thee. I'm a sojourner like my father's. God, I'm only a, a stranger, a passing guest. I'm, I'm coming through. I'm going quickly. And one thing you find out about these strangers, about these sojourners, is that they were dependent on the mercy and the goodwill of others. David is saying, God, my time here is so brief, and I'm dependent on your mercy. I am in great need of what only you can provide. I guess the question that I want to ask this morning is a question that I need to ask myself is, are you aware that God is your Father in a special, intimate way that encourages you to go to Him with your troubles, that you go to Him for mercy, That you understand that your life is very brief and you're passing through and you are dependent upon His gifts, His supply, His grace, His mercy in your life. Brothers and sisters, our hope is found in God alone. In verse 13, he says, Turn thy gaze away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more sounds a lot like Job 10 and verse 20. Would he not let my few days alone withdraw from me that I may have a little cheer? It doesn't mean that he he wants God to stop caring for him, but that he asks God to stop disciplining him. I think whenever we're in a difficult situation, we're often more concerned about getting out of our trial rather than getting our focus right. And yet that's often why God has us going through that is because he's readjusting our focus. He's teaching us to be more dependent upon him. You see, you and I should be more concerned about where our own eyes are fixed and that we should fix them on God himself and on the Lord Jesus Christ. He will provide exactly what you need. Often we find ourselves in great difficulty and we're unaware of how we got there. And what's causing our difficulty. But there is someone to whom we can turn. And that he will meet us where we are. Psalm 39 and verse number 7 is a wonderful verse to underline in your Bible. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in thee. 
Is your focus on Him? Is God your hope? Is God the one to whom you turn? Whether you're being disciplined by Him or not, He's the only one who can give us joy and peace. My prayer is that each one of us would day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, trust in Him alone. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful for the life of David and the way that you used him to write the Psalms and even the, some of the lessons that come from the difficult times in life are helpful to us. Lord, I, I pray for the people of this local body of believers, this local assembly, that, Lord, that you would uh, have your hand upon them. I, I pray for those especially who are going through difficult times that they would be reminded by the words of David, that you are a God who can always be trusted. Lord, may our hope be in you. Thank you for the way that you hem us in whenever we need to be hemmed in. Thank you for the way that you get our attention and that you give us perspective. Lord, help us to be intentional about the way that we live. Forgive us for the ways that we fail you. We're so grateful for the gospel and that there is forgiveness and grace for us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be living for your purposes so that you would be honored and glorified. We love you and just thank you for our time together and pray that you would be pleased with our hearts. For We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.